Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Affidavit for a search warrant. State of Michigan, Oakland County. Detective Sergeant Gary Gray, affiant, being first duly sworn on oath deposes and says that the following property constitutes evidence of criminal conduct. Trace evidence including human hair, animal hair, carpet fibers, blood, or DNA residue. Fiant is one of the police officers from several police departments that are continuing to investigate a series of homicides of children that occurred in Oakland County, Michigan in the years of 1976 and 1977. These homicides were believed to have been committed by the same perpetrator or perpetrators based on similarities in the kidnapping, length of time before the subsequent disposal of the bodies, and the physical trace evidence that was recovered during the autopsies of the victims. D. Affiant further states that on February 15, 1976, a missing person report was filed with Sergeant Dingman of the Ferndale Police Department in Ferndale, Michigan by the mother of Mark Douglas Stebbins, a 12-year-old male. The police report indicates that Ruth Stebbins reported that Mark was at the American Legion Hall in Ferndale at approximately 3.30. He said that he was going home to watch a movie on TV and left. She stated that he had not returned home. E. On February 19, 1976, the Southfield Police Department responded to a call reporting the discovery of a body. F. Affiant further states that on December 22, 1976, a missing person report was filed with the Royal Oak Police Department by Tom Robinson, father of Jill Robinson, an 11-year-old female. Mr. Robinson reported that Jill, who was living with her mother, had left her home at 6.30 p.m. and had not returned nor arrived at his residence. Jill's mother, Carol Robinson, told police that her daughter left her home after an argument over household chores. G. Affiant has reviewed Troy Police Department police report number X and was thereby informed that on December 26, 1976, at approximately 8.45 a.m., a call was received by the Troy Police Department regarding a body found next to Interstate 75 in Troy. H. Affiant further states that on January 2nd, 1977, at 6 p.m., Deborah Ascroft, mother of Christine Mihalik, age 10, made a missing person report to the Berkeley Department of Public Safety. She stated that her daughter left the house at 3 p.m. to go to a nearby 7-Eleven convenience store and had not returned. I. Affiant further states that on January 21, 1977, a postal employee called the Franklin Village Police Department and reported the discovery of a body in a snowbank. Responding officers found the body of Christine Mihalik. She was fully clothed. L. Affiant further states that on March 16, 1977, a missing person report was made to the Birmingham Police Department by Barry King, father of Timothy King, age 11. On March 22, 1977, Livonia police officers in neighboring Wayne County received a call reporting a body lying in a ditch.
You're listening to You Know They Know from the files of the Oakland County Child Killer Investigation with J. Reuben Appleman, author of The Kill Jar, a chronicle of 10 years investigating Detroit's most notorious serial killer case, published by Simon & Schuster. The Kill Jar was the springboard for the investigation discovery TV show Children of the Snow, now on Hulu. You Know They Know is brought to you from the KRBX studios in Boise, Idaho. I'm Jay Ruben Appleman. From the time I began researching the Oakland County child killings outside of Detroit, Michigan, to the time my book was finished, 10 years had passed. Those 10 years were a personal mess, and I chronicled that mess in the pages of The Kill Jar. Most readers understand why I did so, to tell the bigger story of how this case affected the millions of people, including myself, living with its uh, grim inheritance. Some readers wanted only more and more of the dirty details of the case of the Oakland County child killings, though they didn't care about my personal story very much, uh, nor nor should they necessarily. Challenge accepted. This podcast was partially born in response to readers of The Kill Jar and viewers of Children of the Snow asking for more, and it was also greatly born from the compelling evidence that indicates this case should have been solved years ago, leading me and others to wonder, was it? Each episode begins with a reading from the actual case files in my possession, the decades of investigative narratives and interrogation transcripts, the evidence trails and autopsy reports and polygraph results, and all manner of supplementary reporting from the hundreds of city, county, state, and FBI investigators who have touched this uh, allegedly unsolved case. Today, you heard me read from an affidavit for a search warrant. We will get back to that in uh, future episodes. On the show with me today uh, is Catherine Broad, uh, or will be Catherine Broad very shortly here, uh, formerly Catherine King, sister of victim number four to the Oakland County child killer. Um, Today, I'll be talking about the Oakland County child killings in general, and I will be digging into the case of the abduction and murder of victim number one, Mark Stebbins. Kathy uh, will join me. Uh, in about five minutes. Um, From 1976 to 1977, four children outside of Detroit were abducted, held in captivity, and eventually murdered. Detroit in the 1970s was a tale of two cities, rich and poor alike. The big three American automakers of Ford and Chevy and General Motors pumped money into blue-collar families in a time when machinists uh, could be pulling down enough cash to pay the bills buy the vehicles they supported with their work and, and, and own, own fishing cottages or ski cabins up north in the Michigan woodlands they visited. Detroit in the 1970s was a place where the middle class was a real thing. Uh, at the same time, the white-collar rich drove Cadillacs fresh off the line, uh, Cadillacs and Corvettes so new they smelled like bread from a bakery. The rich were rich, rich, rich. Uh, auto, in, auto industry execs in Detroit had the wealth we could compare to Silicon Valley wealth in Cali or, or oil wealth in Texas. Uh, the big three were, were big money to Detroit and its suburbs, and, and the big inner city buildings in Detroit loomed over the city and were full of that money uh, running, running from office to office. The power brokers and politicians in Detroit had tentacles that reached throughout the state of Michigan. And at the end of each workday, most of those politicians and power brokers jumped into their caddies and got the hell out of the downtown area, leaving it momentarily to be that other Detroit making the news. The hundreds of thousands of poor people primarily left out of the auto industry spoils, uh, filling impoverished plots like the Brewster Projects, reaping very little trickle-down money from the rich, reaping maybe a crumb or two from the very full plates and 
having to crawl across the concrete floor to find whatever dropped. In those impoverished corners, the drug and pornography and sex industries thrived. In summers, prostitutes walked the streets with bruised legs and bare shoulders, and in the winters, they walked those streets as well. And in projects and drug squats, baggies were pushed and children groomed into whatever trade was most valuable at the time. Suburbanites maybe dipped back into Detroit on the weekends for the great music scene that gave us old school greats like the Temptations, Four Tops, the Supremes, but contemporary monster acts like Bob Seger, Alex, Alex Cooper, and Ted Nugent uh, also. Later, we, we'd know Detroit because of hardcore punk, techno, and rap, but in the 70s, Detroit was caught in the aesthetic battle between the advent of disco and rock, and rock was winning in many of the blue-collar suburbs, and it was in this era, in those suburbs, that four children went missing over a 13-month period. Um, Mark Stebbins went missing on, I think it was February 15th, uh, uh, turned up dead on February 19th of 1976. Joe Robinson was next, December uh, 22nd, I believe it was, and December 26th turned up dead, uh, also of 1976. Christine Mihalik, um, 10 years old, was uh, abducted uh, January 2nd uh, of 1977 and uh, was held in captivity for 19 days, turned up dead 1977, uh, January 21st. Um, Timothy King, who was 11 years old, was uh, abducted on March 16th and, and turned up um, on Gill Road, uh, dead on, on the 22nd of 1977. And those were the only four that that we know about that are to be tied. Uh, it is suggested that other children were, were, who were abducted around that period were, were tied to the, the same killer or killers. But, but what we can say with certainty is that these four were, were tied. Um, the, the police uh, told us there were no suspects. Um, uh, the, they presume, or they, they led us to presume that there was a lone killer based on reporting that came out in the news that we, we should be looking for. Uh, a, a lone serial killer. There, there was also um, wanted posters uh, put around town with a composite sketch of, of a man seen talking to Timothy King. So people assumed that was the killer, um, and, and people were were looking for that guy. Um, uh, at the time, there were 300 investigators or so um, working uh, with a budget that was larger than any other. Um, uh, murder investigation budget in U.S. history at the time. Millions of dollars uh, was poured into a task force. Nobody was ever arrested. Um, around late 1977, uh, 78, excuse me, um, don't quote me on that actual date right now, the task force um, comprised of all these cops pronounced they'd run out of money to continue the investigation, um, and they pulled out of town, um, they pulled out of the Detroit area, basically, leaving a handful of people to... Um, Either work on the case or pretend to work on the case. Um, no, no more killings occurred, though. Um, so they presumed they were looking for an inactive killer. Um, the feeling of the public was that that uh, the citizenry had been left to shoulder the burden of, of a hell of a lot of fear. Uh, there didn't seem to be anybody helping out anymore. Um, <clears throat> once in a while, there'd be a news article. Uh, we're doing this, we're doing that. But more or less, the presence of these 300 investigators from the Michigan State Police, the FBI, the county, the cities, um, multiple counties, multiple cities, um, were really no longer present on the case. They split, and there were no more killings. Why did this happen? Uh, the case was left cold. Um, it's been 43 years now. Um, I did a book about the case. I did a TV show about the case. Others have done other things about the case. 
what is the story here? How can it be cold after 43 years and the largest uh, manhunt budget in history? And no explanation, really, for why the uh, FBI, the Michigan State Police, um, uh, multiple counties and cities had, had pulled, pulled out. Um, cold? Behind the scenes in the 1970s, a lot was happening that the public never got to hear about. Um, multiple suspects were looked at, um, but I want to I want to bring in uh, and and the and the public never knew about that that these multiple suspects had been looked at, questioned, many of them failing polygraphs, um, all kinds of shit that 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 makes your skin crawl now to find out. Um, but we're going to dig into why this case was allegedly left cold. We're going to talk about this for. I'm going to have dozens and dozens of episodes, but to, today for the very first one, we're going to talk about the very first uh, child who went missing. I'm going to um, have Kathy Broad here. She's here right now um, on the phone. Um, Kathy, hi. Hi, Jason. Thanks for listening to what I promised would only be 10 minutes and looks like it's been 20 or 25, um, which is okay because we don't have commercials interrupting it, but um, thanks for your patience. You bet. Um, so Kathy, uh, as I've already said, is the sister of, uh, victim number four, Timothy King. Um, Kathy's agreed to, uh, talk, talk a lot of this out with me. We're going to go first with, um, Mark Stebbins after with Jill Robinson, then Christine Mihalik and then, and then Kathy's brother, Tim. Um, but can you tell me, uh, can we talk about, and it's not, you know, we can go for for as long as we want. Um, can you tell me what um, your memory is of the Mark Stebbins uh, abduction? And I know your, your brother had not been abducted yet, so your memory may be nil. Or can you, and if that's the case... Just skip to what what you what you were thinking as the investigation went on. What tell me tell me what you know about the Mark Stebbins abduction? I guess. Well, I would have been sixteen, Jason, when um, sixteen or seventeen when Mark was abducted, and my parents got both the Detroit News and the Detroit Free Press, and so I, you know, I have this sense of remembering Mark's picture in the newspaper, and. Um, you know, it was really just horrifying, so kind of, and it wasn't in an era of 24-7 news, so, you know, you could just stop reading the article, but um, I do, oh, and we got the, the Royal Oak Daily Tribune, too, so, you know, he had this sweet face, and I remember it. What, uh, how much did you think about it at the time? Um, not, I didn't overthink it. I didn't think about it a lot. Um, you know, living in the suburbs and the age that I was, um, you feel like you're bulletproof. Um, you know, I was babysitting for a lot of kids, um, from about the age of sixth grade on. So I, it impacted me thinking that way. Like, you know, there, it did cause some level of fear but you know as far as it impacting my daily life um it didn't and so you and i have talked for we've known each other for years now and i know that you can do a pretty good job of telling me how uh things went down with mark 
uh, in retrospect as an adult, can you can can we do that together? Can you tell me what um, what you know now about the Mark Stebbins abduction, just from the very beginning? Right. Well, we know that he um, had been. It was a Sunday. He had been at the American Legion Hall with his mother and his older brother, um, who's just a little bit older, I think, than I am. And he was there for part of the afternoon and then decided he got permission from his mother to leave to go home to watch a movie. And you know, it was broad daylight in an allegedly really safe suburb. Um, what had been going on at the American Legion was a party. Um, I think, you know, I've heard it, said that Ruth was there, his mother Ruth, you know, they were cooking chili and serving stuff, so there would have been a lot of people there, um, I think playing pool and things like that. So Mark left and went home, and, you know, this was long before the era of cell phones, so um, his mom at some point calls home and there's no answer, and then eventually, um, Mike Stebbins walks home, and... Mike Mike Ruth, is Mark's brother? Older brother? His older brother, uh-huh. And um, his mother calls home and asks, and Mike answers, hey, where's Mark? And he said, I don't know, he's not here. So um, his mom comes home, and I think they do what a lot of people might have done at that point, they just waited for a while to see if he would show up, um, maybe contacted some of his friends, and then later in the evening, um, his mom called the Ferndale police and filed a missing persons report. Um, and, you know, sadly, I think it still happens today, unfortunately, in both his case and Jill's, the police really downplayed any concern, you know, we haven't had a kidnapping here in a very long time, you know, he'll turn up, whatever. Um, but the next morning, he didn't turn up. And so at that point, um, there was a more active search. And Mark was missing uh, for four days. And then his um, body was found um, on a weekday morning. It's behind a, an office building in Southfield. Uh, found how? Where? What was it? How was it positioned? He was, um, he was um, in his clo- the clothing he had last been seen in. He had on a parka. It was pulled up around his head. Um, he was laid either on um, like a low wall or next to a wall um, where, I mean, I think the body position was such that, you know, but for the fact that it was cold out, you you wouldn't necessarily, I mean, the person who called and reported seeing the body, I think, was confused and not all that concerned um, because you know, here's this kid laid out um, in a parking lot. Not not all that concerned because they thought... I think I think that person described thinking that it was a mannequin. Yeah. I mean, this 
this gives some sense of what life was like in the Detroit suburbs back then. I mean, that's not a dead body. That's that's a mannequin. Who yeah. put that mannequin out there? Right. I mean, I, I, one thing that we should clear up is that uh, the Detroit, when we say suburbs, a lot of people nowadays, they might also think subdivision or something and think of like kind of enclosed spaces. And, and in some in some ways, Detroit was what you're in, indicating, which is true, is that the Detroit suburbs were very much uh, quieter than they are now. But but um, but yeah. but there were major thoroughfares that we're talking about. This this area that we're talking about was um, a highly generally a highly trafficked area it wasn't like it was in a subdivision it was there was a main road with lots of later in the day uh, during rush hour and all that during travel to work and such there would be um or you know all week there would be lots of traffic and stuff eventually right i mean this wasn't oh absolutely there were corridors that led straight to detroit and i mean it's a pretty efficient setup yeah so the body is found and um what do what do the I mean, what happens then? I mean, they, they, there's no from my understanding, you know, uh, it's reported that a body is you know that a boy has been abducted and killed, but no no kinds of hysteria or whatever. This is this is de, this is decidedly a one off kind of situation, correct? Like right at the right. time, and the scene is processed by Southfield PD. I'm looking at the um, crime report um, that Charlotte Day from the state police filed out, filed a couple days after Mark's body was found. And right. um, Detective Mel Ponovich um, was the person who processed the scene. And um, Ponovich, in the recent, relatively recent past, met with my dad and my brother um, once a bunch of, you know, publicity had been generated on the case to explain kind of how Mark's scene was processed and to tell my dad and my brother that he had never been contacted by subsequent task force um, members to ask what he remembered. But Ponovich told my my family that he received he called Elbrooks Patterson and received permission. Elbrooks Patterson was the uh, Oakland County um, prosecutor, prosecutor at right the at the time. Yes. At the time, correct? Yeah, correct. He he called the Oakland County prosecutor and requested and was granted permission to process Mark's body because uh, they both agreed, according to Ponovich, that. Um, Dr. Robert Sillery, who was a medical examiner, uh, was would botch it, that he was not competent to perform this um, autopsy on a child murder victim. So, believe it or not, Mark's body is taken to the Southfield Police Department, uh, where Ponovich, who had, you know, some preliminary self-study type experience with with um, evidence retrieval. He um, removed the clothing, bagged it, you know, kind of, he did what otherwise would have been done by Robert Sillery. And then the evidence was processed by the um, 
Michigan State lab. And that in and of itself is really a red flag. You know, nothing against Malponovich, but, you know, the fact that they did not want the Oakland County Medical Examiner touching and ruining evidence is number one. And number two, if you look at this report, it's clear that somebody, while they were processing the scene at that office building, covered Mark's body with a blanket. And um, the who knows, there's no explanation in the report where this blanket came from, but you could see um, why somebody might do that, you know, with the work day and, you know, they so they cover Mark's body. And at the end of the report, Charlotte Day says, it is unfortunate that the dirt and debris samples from the parking lot and the blanket used to cover the body were not made available to the laboratory until May 1977. It would have been particularly useful to know that a dirty blanket had been used to cover the body and that this blanket is a probable source of trace evidence present on the clothing. Okay, there's so, a hold, let's, hold before we go on. There's a lot of things to unpack here. First, I want to I want to remind people listening that that Ponovich is that his name? Mel Ponovich. Okay, was the detective right, and he and he recently talked to your dad, right, and told him like in the last three to four years. Okay, and then told him the things that you're talking about that now occurred. Um, that you can also read that, that he told told him. Excuse me. He told your dad recently that he had requested to, at the time in seventy seventy six, to uh, do the unpacking or, uh, so to speak, of the body, um, uh, because Sillery would fuck it up, and right. and then now you're looking at the the actual medical exam. Charlotte Day is she the medical examiner? I forget who she no, is. No, Charlotte Day is um, from the state. Michigan State Police Lab. The, from the lab, excuse me, that's what I meant. From, so she's from the laboratory, and she's talking about um, the processing of the body, that, that at the time it was also covered with a blanket, and they didn't know this until, it, you said May of 77, which February, March, April, May, which means 15 months later, they didn't. she discovered that the, that the body had been covered with a blanket at the scene? Um, yeah. So yeah, May, it says May of 77. And by May of '77, uh, uh, all all four victims of the Oakland County Child Killer had already been abducted and murdered. Um, yeah. So, um, just, just sort of t- to get an, to get an, an, uh, another sense of things, this is not normal to 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 come upon a dead body. Um, and to cover it with a blanket is it may be an emotional response. We see this shit in television uh, when people are crying, crying, cover the body or like in in some instances. I mean, the the thing is, um, God, I forget the, the young black man who was who was murdered by police um, a, a couple of years ago and they left his body out in the street for three or four hours. Right. And in some instances, that's that's clearly the wrong thing to do is just leave it sitting there. Um, uh, there was so much trauma uh, on, on the local citizens and such um, because this body was left sitting there almost as a 
as a warning to the rest of them um, is what a lot of the citizens felt felt in that instance. In this instance, there really was no reason to cover the body for, for, um, you know, especially for crime scene um, exploration purposes, you would you would not cover that body. Um, that so she's also indicating not only that that debris and dirt and such could have come from the blanket, but what she doesn't say, and or maybe she does at some point, is that that blanket may have also uh, destroyed or otherwise manipulated evidence that had been on the body prior to the blanket being put over it. Right, or there was a transfer from the blanket to Mark. Right. Um, so, so okay. So, uh, homeboy uh, first bags the evidence, and then later Sillery examines the body. Is that what happened? I think that's how it goes, Jason. And then when Charlotte Day is involved, she received the evidence from Detective Ponovich on the, the day after Mark is found. Uh, the report states that the evidence was received on two twenty seventy six. And then there's clearly this addendum at the end of the report where she talks about May 77. Okay. So what what do we know? I mean, I know a lot. You know a lot. Can you summarize things you remember about the sort of discrepancies in evidence with Mark or discrepancies in allegations about what had happened with Mark or reporting, I should say, of what happened to Mark, what didn't happen to Mark? Um, things like that? Uh, Yeah, there's a lot of discrepancies, Jason. Um, Well, first, when you were reading from the the search warrant affidavit, um, you know, Detective Gray states that Dr. Patinga, that's the person, he was one of the underlings to Sillery, Dr. Patinga from Oakland County had done the autopsy and states semen was found. Then, if you look semen at was, uh, semen was found, correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's how they, that's, and then, um, you know, of course, Charlotte Day did not touch Mark's body, but she says with regard to the underpants, you know, no semen was found. Well, that doesn't mean there was no semen, right? Right. In Mark's body. It just, um, so, and then, you know, as we've discussed many times, it was it was portrayed that Mark was left kind of in this almost loving fashion, and that his clothes had been washed, and, you know, it's clear, you know, Charlotte Day examines his clothing, um, the shirt had been worn, it was, you know, it was consistent with having been worn multiple days, the socks show normal wear, as indicated by both their appearance and body odor, the underpants had clearly been worn for numerous days. Um, The red sweatshirt, she notes, like the jeans, is clean in contrast to the undergarments. So maybe the red sweatshirt was off. And also earlier, and, and she contradicts herself, she says that the jeans were clean except for portions of the upper right leg, but then she surmises that 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 got dirty while he was, you know, left in the parking lot. So, I mean, this isn't, this isn't, you know, modern day. This is pretty basic stuff, Jason. And when you think about the blanket, and again, who knows 
which of the responding officers or agencies put the blanket on Mark. But, you know, this is these are suburbs. These cops are traffic cops, and, you know, they respond to property crimes, not child murders. So, you know, today they would have never put a dirty blanket over Mark. Um, but, you know, did it surprise me when I read that? No. Um, so there are a lot of inconsistencies, and I don't think the early reports talked much about Mark had a head injury, which bled. That was on the inside of his um, hood. Um, some blood on the red sweatshirt, which Charlotte Day describes as being clean. Um, and, you know, it was, uh, I remember that they described it as a circular. It was like he was hit with something. Um, and, you know, they didn't talk about that in um, any of the early news reports. I mean, they're clearly trying to keep panic to a minimum, even from this initial, um, Mark's initial case. But, um, you know, it gets weirder. Um, a, a prayer ca- card from Mark's funeral is found at this very scene one week later on the date of Mark's funeral. Now, you know, I can't really see someone who loved Mark going to his service and meeting his mother and brother, and then, oh, I think I'll go pay a visit to where his body was left and and leave a prayer card as some sort of tribute. That just doesn't make sense to me. But, you know, it's noted in the report that this prayer card was found at the scene one week later on the day of the funeral. And I do remember reading from one of the newspaper accounts that Mark's mother, Ruth, when questioned about this, that, you know, yes, I, the police told me that, and I may well have shook hands with the person who killed my son. So, I mean, this thing is weird. It's horrible from the second he goes missing, but it gets weirder and weirder. And let's not forget that that Dr. Bruce Danto was brought into or came into this investigation very early on, and you might not want to go there just yet. Yeah, um, we're gonna. I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say that Dan, Danto was a psychologist known, like a kind of known for being a criminal profiler, even though he he had very only brief kind of experience with it. He was into serial killers and stuff, and he was brought in to uh, consult with the task force. Um, I am going to do a whole episode on Danto so we could, we, it's okay to mention him and such, but um, <clears throat> I do want to clarify a few things since you, you said so much here. Um, okay. <clears throat> we can, we can get back to him, but, but I want, I want to say that um, uh, you, you, you mentioned that, that um, the, the, the news reporting was sort of manipulated to to, to an extent to keep what you said as panic at a minimum and 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 that was basically that starts with the police what they're letting trickle out to the to the news reporters and and right. um, and so what we what we learned from the from the news reporting about this case was that mark had been abducted taken apparently taken uh, care of 
uh, well cared for in captivity as, because his clothes were clean. Um, nothing had happened to him physically except for we. I think we learned about um, that. The, we may have learned about the injury on his head, but not right away. Um, but nothing had really happened to him. Uh, he uh, presumably had been asphyxiated. Um, you know, but he hadn't been sexually molested, sexually uh, assaulted, or anything like that. For certain, that was not in the papers. Um, and and there, uh, and that the thing is, that was you can say that that was given to the press to keep panic, so-called panic, at a minimum. But that story never really changed over the years. Um, so that initial story of of uh, this is a boy who was abducted. He was taken care of. His clothes were cleaned. He was murdered which is horrible but he wasn't violently abused or anything like that that story was was kept in the in the common what that was continued to be the common perception for decades as far as as far as i'm concerned um certainly on occasion there were little blips of stories that came out that hinted at the truth uh, because some reporter did some actual work um but more or less the public perception of this case was that these kids were were not sexually um, uh, assaulted and and um, the, the 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 what you said about uh, semen being found um, in, in uh, or not found on the underpants by by what Charlotte Day says and and then the initial reporting that semen was found in the in the anal cavity was also contradicted by another medical report that I have that we'll get to over the course of these these episodes that there's one medical report that says semen was found and there was another report that says oh that was an accident semen wasn't found right um, and so <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I, you, you can say, you know, the, I mean, you cannot say that these were not people who were used to examining murder victims. So for starters, you, you know, you, you, what you said about the police, well, these are not, these are traffic cops. They weren't, they weren't used to dead children. Okay. Let's, let's get back to that in a second, but let's talk about the medical examination process. Clearly homeboy is already afraid that Sillery is going to fuck it up. And and why there must be a history there, and we'll talk about Sillery. I have lots of uh, meat we can talk about with Sillery later on um, in in the episodes, or I'll be I'll be covering him for sure. Um, and uh, but um, uh, uh, clearly, there's a the the process of examining this first body right off the bat is is a fucking disaster. Um, he's covered with a blanket that's not normal police procedure. Evidence is um, I I. I'll I'll prove later that evidence is mis is is um is cataloged wrong. It, it, it it's there's co- contradictory evidence that doesn't seem to make con- contradictory reporting of evidence that doesn't seem to make sense and and um, contradictory uh, statements about what had happened to this to this boy um, that Mark Stebbins was just taken care of. No, Mark Stebbins was abducted, held in captivity, um, sodomized, you know, raped. Uh, and and um, and then just dumped out on the ground. Um, this was not some sort of um, uh, meticulous, well cared for um, toy to somebody that they then lovingly uh, suffocated and gave back to the world. That, that's not uh, <clears throat> that's not what we're dealing with here. And and also, I want to say, I mean, to your point, you say we we give. We cut a lot of slack to those to those cops when we talk about this case because we can't believe it that 
that um, we say things like these were traffic cops, um, but mm, you know <clears throat> these these are traffic cops if that's what they were normally doing or domestic assault cops or whatever. Um, working outside of Detroit, I grew up at that time. I was uh, six years old, and I was smart enough to to know that Detroit was a violent fucking place, and yeah. and 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 you cannot be a cop in in Ferndale, Michigan, or Southfield, Michigan, where the body was found, or Birmingham, Michigan, or all these places that are outside of Detroit where all these bodies were abducted and 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 then dropped, um, and not. And not know how to investigate a murder. I'm sorry, but they they don't get they don't get slack for that just because it wasn't common. You're a fucking cop right outside of one of the most violent cities in the country. So, like, if you don't know how That's to process, very good point. If you don't know That's how to process a murder point. scene, yeah, these are not these are not people who came down from the newspaper office to do the work. You know, <laughs> these are these are guys who they were in and out of Detroit all day long, all the time. I mean, they had a, lots of times that you know they probably took their fucking lunch breaks in Detroit. You know, like it's it's only yeah. a ten minute jaunt on the freeway from from Ferndale to to inner city Detroit. So, well, and at the time, Detroit was the murder murder capital of the yeah. United States. And why why wouldn't they call someone from Detroit homicide to come help them out? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's kind of insane. Uh, so. So I don't I don't I'm not giving them any uh, I'm not cutting them any slack on that kind of stuff, even though in the past, that's what people like to say. And even some of the cops, you know, will say, you know, like great some of the great cops. And, and I'm going to have Jack Calflesh on the on the phone. He was a great cop. Um, he, he would say, you know, these were, you know, yeah, this wasn't common for us. But that doesn't mean Jack Calflesh doesn't know how to process. It. He does. You know, he's right. he, he knows, you know, he knows his shit. All these people knew their shit. Some of these people um, were were completely uh, incompetent, not not uh, unknowing. You know, it's like a different thing. Like yeah. When, yeah. W- when somebody's a drunk, it wasn't Sillery. I mean, it might have been Sillery. For I could be wrong. Sillery or Cabot. I can't remember the polygrapher. Sillery is the Sillery is the medical examiner. He he was known to throw things. And also, wasn't he? Wasn't he later? Um, I'm going to look this up and, and be more accurate about it, but wasn't he later charged with something and then let go? I think it was Medicaid fraud. And if you Google his name, you'll cu- he had some legal woes. Um, and there's something online about, I mean, he had botched like 900 autopsies. I mean, it's off the charts. Yeah. So, <laughs> and this is why homeboy that I can't pick what's his name. The first guy said, um, that you mentioned, Ponovich. yeah, Ponovich said, um, that's my go-to. If I don't remember their name, I just say homeboy. Um, okay. um, this is why homeboy, um, uh, said we can't give this to Sillery. Clearly it yes. was, clearly it was known in the department that Sillery was, was either a hack incompetent or, um, you know, on the take or whatever, just not not known to be good at, at at doing what he was doing, or not known to be ethical. Anyway, so Mark, so Mark's body is processed. There is um, semen found. I'm just going to talk about what we really know. Semen found in his uh, anal cavity. Hairs found on his body. Very briefly, let's talk about. Um, the hair on his body 
and what we what okay. and what we now know and and briefly and also let's talk about that picture of Mark Stebbins that everybody talks about when they talk about this case. Maybe let's start with the picture. I'll I'll just do it briefly and then we could talk about the the hair. Um later uh uh well, actually, shortly after Mark Stebbins is abducted, uh, tips begin to call, be, be called in. Or, um, I mean, we're talking within a few months or whatever, because uh, Jill Robinson is, is abducted. Um, uh, you know, I can't remember actually when. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double check this, when the tips started to be called in, um, because there was no OCCK task force yet after Mark Stebbins was abducted. Jill Robinson was abducted, and then Christine was abducted, and Timothy King was abducted. And, and sometime in, in there, the task force is created, and um, tips are called in. And one of these, one of these people that's called in uh, um, is a, a guy named Christopher Bush. And uh, uh, after all of the killings, after Tim is abduct, uh, abducted and murdered, uh, shortly after that, Christopher Bush, um, who I consider to be suspect numero uno, uh, he commits allegedly commits suicide. And at that suicide scene, among other um, things, pointing to Christopher Bush as as possibly being uh, involved in these killings and his suicide possibly not being a suicide um, is found a, a pencil drawing of, of we know it's Mark Stebbins. I mean, it, there's, yeah. there's a picture that, that, that somebody drew by hand with a pencil on, on white paper that um, could, could be nobody but Mark Stebbins. And that's found at the Christopher Bush suicide scene. And, and the pictures of Mark Stebbins uh, screaming out in what looks like pain and suffering. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a picture of his face. It's a it's a close up of his face, um, and this is found at at uh, the suicide scene of the alleged suicide scene of Christopher Bush, who from very early on was called in as a tip, um, and was in the process of being investigated for other for many other criminal sexual conduct um, charges with children, uh, young boys of the same age, more or less. And who um, had a partner in crime, um, Gregory Green, um, but but we're going to get to these guys uh, later on. For now, let's talk about um, uh, the hair found on Mark on Mark's uh, Mark Stebbins. Um, okay. Tell me, tell well, me let's what. Let's not forget too about the drawing. The it's a drawing of a boy screaming, and he has on a parka. And the hood is pulled up. It's like exactly how Mark's body was found. Right. Um, so, but but looking at the laboratory report prepared by Charlotte Day, it says that um, on the blue jeans, one human head hair, two and three quarters inches long, was found. Okay. And then, of course, she doesn't know if that's, you know, if that has come from the blanket or that, but that is the one, one thing they find, the one human head hair, two and three quarters inches long. But if I could just back up for one minute to Jason, it's not like no one was calling in after Mark went missing. Because if you look at the evidence received on the 20th, which is one day after Mark's body was found, 
it refers to fur and hair from victim, swab from ice chest in suspect's vehicle. So they've already talked to somebody and consider him a suspect. Hair from ice chest in suspect's vehicle. And that uh, suspect, that, and that suspect we know is who? It's not Arch Sloan, but it's somebody who um, I could find the name if I had to. But it's somebody who had been at the um, at the American Legion um, Hall where Mark had gone missing. Okay. So, but you know, none of this, none of this ever pans out. But. Right here on the twentieth, they have a suspect. They have the victim. And you mentioned dad. just for just for listeners, you you mentioned um, you mentioned Art Sloan. We'll get back to Art Sloan later on. We don't have to talk about him right now. But go ahead. Well, he got called in early as a suspect, um, perhaps even before Chris Bush and Greg Green. But you know, on the twentieth, the day after Mark's body is found, they clearly have talked to someone they consider a suspect. Because she's also processing suspect's jacket, red fibers from suspect's vehicle, red fibers from victim's pants. Um, she later goes on to say that those fibers were, were found not to be similar. So there, people are getting called in um, as soon as Mark is known to be, you know, or very well presumed to be a kidnapped victim. Right. So what but, what do we later learn about this hair um, on Mark Stebbins' body? Well, many um, years, decades later, like seven years ago, um, what we learn is that, oh, all of a sudden, um, the current Oakland County prosecutor, Jessica Cooper, announces that the lab has determined that this hair found on Mark Two hairs found on my brother Tim match hair, a hair or hairs that were found in uh, a Pontiac Bonneville that ha- that had been owned by Art Sloan and searched back in the day. So, like in two thousand and you know nine, um, they're just now saying, "Well, this hair found on Mark." which, you know, I don't think Charlotte Day would have found probative at all. That hair, two hairs on Tim, all, and they match a hair found in uh, a vehicle they had searched um, back before uh, Tim went missing. Okay. So this hair found on Tim and what we'll talk about later, two hairs found on Tim, the fourth victim, are matched to DNA found, are a DNA match to uh, materials found in the vehicle, in a vehicle owned by Art Sloan. They are not a match to Art Sloan. Art right. Sloan, however, is a convicted pedophile currently doing, I think, life in prison yeah. for uh, raping children. Is that accurate? Yeah. Okay, so. Yeah. Two of the victims, victim number one, Mark Stebbins, and victim number four, Timothy King, have evidence found on their bodies that match evidence found on the property or in the property of a convicted serial rapist of children. 
who yeah. is now serving life in prison in Michigan. Correct. Art Sloan. They are not a match to Art Sloan, but they are a match to his property. So we know a few things from this. And for starters, we didn't find this out till recently, very recently, although they had the ability to test for DNA many years ago. And this is not based on new technology and DNA testing. This is just regular old DNA testing of these hairs. It's regular old mitochondrial DNA testing because these are hairs, degraded hairs with no, um, okay. you know, just, you know, so oh. it's mitochondrial, but that doesn't matter. Yeah. So what we know for certain uh, is that the slaying of these boys, these two boys, uh, they're related. We know that for certain because I mean, even though there's lots of other information indicating that this is they're related, we know now that DNA DNA clearly ties them. Um, and uh, Art Sloan, let's say it's not Art Sloan. Let's say Art Sloan had nothing to do with the murders of these kids. Um, uh, Art Sloan uh, was known to associate with other uh, serial pedophile rapists of the era. Um, and do you know who any of those are? Um, well, Sloan was probably in with Ted Lamborghini, Richard Lawson. Um, you know, God, there's just been so many. Um, Todd Warschaka, so many of them over um, over the years. These names have come up, and when their DNA didn't, their mitochondrial DNA didn't match. You know, they just dropped. It okay, so so we know that Sloan is associated with well-known pe- serial pedophile rapist of the era in outside Detroit. We also know that some of those names you mentioned, for instance, Ted Lamborghini, is tied directly to Christopher Bush. And you could say people could could argue with that, but there's there's several there are several areas of documentation in the case files that indicate that Christopher Bush and Ted Lamborghini were associated, and we. And and one of those is specifically from a from a, a victim of Christopher Bush, who I, I will cover in the in the podcast series, who talks about um, uh, being driven by Christopher Bush to Ted Lamborghini by Gregory Green and Chris or and or Christopher Bush um, to Ted Lamborghini's house that Christopher Bush knew Ted Lamborghini. They talked about uh, selling him to Ted Lamborghini and Ted Lamborghini. And this is a different victim of, I say, uh, not of the murders, but of molestation by Christopher Bush. Um, and Ted Lamborghini knew Art Sloan and um, all look at all these fucking people knew each other um, because yeah. there was there was no internet of pornography if you want now you can hide in your hole and and <clears throat> look at whatever you want to look at at the time you had to get your porn and do your molesting and all that stuff in little circles there was no internet connecting people you had to actually physically know people to get your stuff from them and um, and to trade your commodities whatever they be whether they're printed material or photographs or actual children as is the case in a lot of a lot of times um so and also do you remember what art sloan was up to on the uh night of the mark stebbins uh abduction okay so they back up and they start looking again at art sloan and then he he was a tow truck driver and he worked at a bunch of different um you know, gas stations. They used to actually be service stations, but back in the day, and um, 
including one that was like, you know, 1.4 miles as a crow flies from where my brother's body was dumped. But that night he was um, back at, the, at this garage and it was in one of the suburbs. He actually called the police department there and said, um, hey, you know, I just want you to know that uh, we're I'm here working on something at the garage and, you know, back before places were open 24 hours and so the lights are on and don't be alarmed and I mean that is really weird um, and he just didn't want the police to to be worried that the lights were on uh, you know he was in in the um, in working on a car so uh, so let's stop right there for a second on the night that victim number one of the Oakland County child killer killing killing to the Oakland County child killings let's say I don't even I don't like to use the Oakland County child killer singular terminology but on the night on the night Mark Stebbins was abducted Art Sloan uh, a a serial pedophile rapist was made a phone call to the police saying hey I'm going to be working late it's just me don't worry about the business yeah don't stop by don't stop by don't worry about everything's cool on the night of the mark stebbins abduction he makes that call decades fucking later (laughs) we we find out we find out that 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 hairs matching the bodies uh hairs found on the bodies of mark stebbins and and timothy king uh are, are a DNA match to uh, materials found in uh, 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 the property of Art Sloan, who made that call. Allegedly, yes. What do you mean allegedly? I, you know, I have a hard time. I don't trust the police. I've, I have not seen the the mtDNA sequencing that shows that those hairs are, are all the same hair but that there is so much distrust you there is so much distrust with the police in this case why because of a million things and what you're saying to me now is that is that I think what you're insinuating is that it looks like maybe Art Sloan is tied to these murders because maybe the police wanted to look like Art Sloan is tied to these murders. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.